without further ado, I would like to introduce Brian Curran, who is one of the resident scholars at the Institute this semester. We are thrilled to have him uh, at Ilsen College. He is Associate Professor of Art History and received his PhD in Art and Archaeology from Princeton. He teaches courses in uh, Italian Renaissance and Baroque art, as well as courses in historiography, uh, antiquarianism, and the history and theory of sculpture. Before coming to Penn State in 1997, he was a teaching fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at Columbia, and a member of the curatorial staff in the Department of Egyptian and Ancient Near Eastern Art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He has received many fellowships and grants, and just to mention some, the Samuel Crest Institutional Fellowship at the Biblioteca Herziana in Rome, the Rome Prize of the American Academy in Rome, a research grant from the Renaissance Society of America, and most recently, a residential fellowship at Villa Itati, the um, Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies in Florence. Dr. Curran has published articles and reviews in many journals, including the Art Bulletin, the Journal of the Warburg and Courtauld Institutes, Word and Image, the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians, and in the Memoirs of the American Academy in Rome. He has also authored uh, a number of book chapters. His book, The Egyptian Renaissance, The Afterlife of Ancient Egypt in Early Modern Italy, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2007. His most recent publication as co-author with, among others, Anthony Grafton, is Obelisk, a history which was released in April 2009 uh, by the uh, uh, Dipner Library of MIT Press. Uh, Dr. Curran is a recipient of numerous uh, Penn State awards, including the College of Arts and Architecture Faculty Award for Outstanding Teaching in 2006, the Roy C. Buck Award, the President's Award for Engagement with Students, and the George W. Atherton Award for Excellence in Teaching received in 2006. Dr. Curran's current research is focused on an investigation of the grammar of time and place in Renaissance art. He is also working on several articles and on a projected volume on the, it's a quote, social life of statues, which I would love to hear more about sometime. Great, social life of statues from antiquity to the present day, as well as some investigations into the history and theory of various popular film genres. He has been appointed to a three-year term as the editor of the Memoirs of the American Academy in Rome, effective in September of 2010. And as I mentioned, he is a current resident of the Institute, and his residency project is a book titled Past, Present, and Place in Italian Renaissance Art. So I am thrilled to welcome him to this venue today, and I see many of our graduate students and mm -hmm. faculty and others, and so I think we're up to a very engaging um, next uh, 90 minutes or so. And we will have time at the end for some uh, Q&A and for some discussion. So thank you, Brian. So. Thank you, uh, Mara, and thank you to all the staff at the Institute for all the help you've given me with putting this to just in this very day, but also you know, for all the assistance I've had. And thank you all for coming out on this lovely afternoon. Uh, a gloomy, but uh, things are turning green, so that's the good side. Um, what I'm presenting today is actually a fragment of, because um, this has been going a little better than the other one. Uh, this is the 
these, these, the sculpture book, the Social Life of Statues, didn't work in title. Um, but uh, the paper is obviously called The Most Famous Lions in Rome, A Tale of Two Statues. What's happening with uh, the, the, the thing on here is that a much, much shorter fragment of this is being given at the Renaissance Society <coughs> meeting in Venice in a couple of weeks. So as you can see, I should have changed the, the heading because I, I, I love that picture so much. The lion, one of the lions is visible there, but you can barely see it. Maybe we can lower the lights a little bit for that. You might get a better look at it. Um, but you'll see them enough. You'll become very familiar with these lions, I can guarantee you that. Um, the most famous lions in Rome. Okay. As we look more and more. Yeah, I can still see, so that's pretty good. I can see it there now, right? Okay. Okay. Right. Lurking. A lurking lion. There'll be a bigger image of it. Hopefully that will be easier to see in this light. Um, my paper today, as I said, never has a work in progress derived from a larger project that examines the private and public lives of statues from ancient to contemporary times. My working thesis, which is informed by the work of numerous scholars and thinkers about um, the sort of sociology of things and the uh, history of sculpture, including the work of Arjun Apadurai and uh, Igor Kopitov, who wrote a book called The Social Life of Things, Commodities and Cultural Perspective back in the 80s, and also a recent volume of Renaissance Studies that actually uh, uh, examined the, um, the life of the object and afterlife of the object and things of that sort. Um, so my working thesis is that, work, that objects, including works of art, may be said to enjoy but can be described as a kind of social life. Um, biography, in a sense, is, is one aspect of this, but, it's all, but there are also, this is going to be a very um, diachronic paper. I'm going to take the career of a couple of statues through a very long period of time. Other m models, which, I, I, which I'm using, are more synchronic and deal with a specific incident or, or specific times. So it's not, I'm not addicted to this kind of model, but this is the, this is the vast long brush model here, which I've been working on uh, in this particular chapter of this book as it's coming out. I've written two, and this is, well, this is the half-written one. Um, okay, so, right. In some cases, as we shall see this afternoon, that social life can extend to a period of many centuries and transformations, as the physical and cultural context that determine the reception and use of these pieces are subjected to changes and to some extent continuities over time. I'm not necessarily claiming that these mute objects should be understood as having actual living experience in and of themselves. What is demonstrably true, however, and in the book I deal with this in more, more detail, is that, is that very often the people who make and or use the statues often treat them as if they were, in fact, living beings. Okay. Tales of statues coming to life or becoming endowed with the power of speech, the myth of Pygmalion, oracular statues, you know, from many cultures, etc. Or people or animals that are transformed from living flesh to stone or bronze, such as the victims of Medusa, which come to mind, can be gathered from the traditions of cultures across the globe. Uh, anyone who has played with a stuffed animal or a toy soldier or imagined it as some sort of living thing has experienced some measure of this idea in a personal sense. In other words, I think that this idea is is, is pervasive, uh, and one, one thing I'm uh, examining in this uh, study are, are various uh, examples of this sort of thing. Um, so here's big now, obviously. Uh, in the case of more decisively inanimate objects, and I've always, statues, I've always considered this one a bit immobile and grand uh, in Florence, in Santa Croce, this statue of Dante. Um, 
And especially in the case of publicly displayed sculptures, such as this one of Dante, or the lions, whose career, for lack of a better word, I'll be examining today, the character of the social life I am attempting to describe is determined by a variety of social factors. Among these, and cultural factors. Among these, placement is, among, is one of the most fundamental and important. When a statue is set up at the center of a great urban space, such as this one, along a shady avenue in a public park, or erected over a grave in a cemetery or a church interior, these spaces endow the piece with a socially determined meaning. These meanings, initially decided upon by the commissioning, commissioning agency, government, church, family of the deceased, etc., may be shown, perhaps initially, but certainly over time, to shift, to blend, or take entirely new shape as the works are beheld by generations of spectators, or in the case of things we'll see today, moved around. <coughs> While the individual subject then is free to respond in an infinity of ways to the motionless presence before her eyes, there is, I think, um, there is always something uncanny or powerful about these objects, and I'm going to try to explore some of these ideas further in the book. I'm going to quote, however, Charles Baudelaire on this subject, because I think he said it rather well, probably better than I ever will, writing on sculpture in the Salon of 1859. Quote, you are passing through a great city which had grown old in civilization, and your eyes are drawn upwards, for in the public squares, at the corners of the crossways, stand motionless figures, larger than those which pass at their feet, repeating to you the solemn legends of glory, war, science, and martyrdom, in a dumb language. Some are pointing to the sky, whither they ceaselessly inspired. Others indicate the earth from which they sprang. They brandish or they contemplate what was, what was the passion of their life and what has become its emblem, a tool, a sword, a book, a torch. Be you the most heedless of men, the most unhappy or the vilest, a beggar or a banker. The stone phantom takes possession of you for a few minutes and commands you in the name of the past to think of things that are not of this earth. Such is the divine role of sculpture. And from that rather unquote sublime and sort of romantic notion, I now flip to something else. Um, of course, not all statues are equally well suited to the transmission of sublime contemplations, like the ones just described to us by Baudelaire. Their message may not, may not be one of glory, melancholy, or despair at all. Some may be even described as friendly, welcoming, even fun. Their message closer to the feeling we might get from a gaily colored mounts of an old-fashioned carousel ride than an effigy of some solemn, loved dead poet, for example. When I think of sculptures of this sort, my mind often turns to statues of lions. I've loved lion statues since I was a little boy. My dear Aunt Julia, of, uh, who died many, many years ago, promised me almost from infancy that, infancy that the pair of modest cement lions on the porch of her little suburban house would be left to me after she passed away. I was hearing this when I was three years old, because I liked the lions so much. And she made good on her word. Although these beloved lions, which were my first grown-up possession, which were passed to me in my teens, were later lost by my parents in one of their many moves from house to house. Something I've never really gotten over. <laughs> and they weren't anywhere near as fancy as that one. Those little lions embodied and in many ways continue to represent in memory the most profound feelings of family membership and continuity for me. Imagine my reaction then. At the age of eight, already in possession of these promised lions, when I moved to London and laid eyes for the first time on the great bronze lions of Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. I climbed those lions many times during that year in England, um, as people still do. People climb lion statues all the time. They're, they're, they're recumbent, they're relatively easy to get up to. 
I think in my mind I just assumed they had been put there for me. I probably recognized even then that Landseer's great lines stood for something more than their undeniably impressive lionhood in and of itself. I knew that the lion was called the King of Beasts, saw the lion heraldry of English royalty displayed on old buildings all across the city, and watched a TV show, an early 60s TV show, devoted to the adventures of the crusader king Richard the Lionheart and his best friend and sometime rival, Saladin. So I knew that lions were, had meaning. Uh, statues of lions and other big, gats, big cats followed me into adulthood. In Princeton, I entered a landscape liberally seasoned with statues of tigers. By then, as an aspiring doctoral student in the history of art, I knew that big cats had a long history as symbols of regal power and protection, going back pretty much to the beginning of the history of representation itself. Ancient and medieval treatises on animal symbols describe the regal power and enduring vigilance of the lion, who never really sleeps as she, he or she guards his territory and his kin from unwanted intrusions. After finishing up at Princeton and spending a couple of years in Rome, I came to State College in Penn State where I got to know another sculpture of a lion, the Nittany Lion statue here, uh, which was built, made in the 40s, a popular shrine just a few steps, located just a few steps in this room. Now, on the most basic level, these kind of big cats, the ones I've just been showing you here, the last two particularly, the Nittany Lion and the Princeton Tigers, are intended to personify the ferocious power of their institution's sports teams. But they may also be said to function as three-dimensional embodiments of community or corporate identity. This sort of like, depends on your ideology, I guess. It's probably both. Um, but the big cats in London and Princeton and University Park are not old by any stretch of the imagination. That is, they have relatively recent histories, even the Landseer ones. All of them have been reproduced in various media as souvenirs or tokens of the places they come to represent. But they do not have the sort of really deep history that I think is required to talk about a career, or at least a career that's going to interest me. In the most satisfying cases, the career of an object may be, may be framed as a series of episodes in a narrative framework that follows the work of art from place to place, from owner to owner, from audience to audience. There's something almost mundane about this. We're all familiar with the provenance summaries provided for various works of art and exhibition catalogs and catalog raisonnés. But what I propose to provide in one section of my proposed book is a selection of two or three case studies that carry the reception and social life of a particular statue or a set of statues across an expansive period of time and through what I think are hopefully interesting uh, and engaging uh, shifts in uh, reception. Okay. Um, for the lions whose life story, for lions, a pair of lions or lion statues whose life story is fully ruler of, of such a label, the label of career, I think it would be best to hop a plane and set our sights on Rome a city that has been generously endowed with statues of all sorts for many centuries. We begin in a rather pleasant location, the Cortile della Pina in the upper court of the Bel Cortile del Belvedere in the Vatican Palace. This space, originally laid out as part of Donato Bramante's great project, was reopened to the public after years of closure in 1981. It's one of the few spots where contemporary visit visitors to the Vatican Museum can stop and enjoy a refreshing break, break before facing the long cattle drive to the Sistine Chapel, or after returning from that ordeal. Our lions are actually located here and here. We'll get closer to them now. At the far end of the cortile, ornamenting the facade of the double staircase that leads to the Bramantian hemicycle with the ancient bronze pine cone peacocks that used to ornament the atrium fountain of old St. Peter's Basilica, a pair of Egyptian lions, originally, dis originally displayed in the nearby Egyptian museum, or once displayed, 
had been installed since about the mid-1980s. As we shall see, this installation evokes the earlier medieval and Renaissance installation of these lions as they were seen by generations of, admi of admirers in Rome, and not one, but two very famous and, and frequent, often frequented public spaces of the city, um, including the Piazza della Rotonda and the um, Piazza di San Bernardo in Rome. The lions of the cortile are a matched pair, almost certainly commissioned as pendants. Each lion, they are decidedly male, is, uh, each, each inscribed for the late dynastic pharaoh, Nectanebo I, whose name I'm giving you up here, uh, assumes a recumbent and apparently relaxed but still alert pose, with the head turned at a right angle from the body, etc., etc. I can speak a description of here. The hieroglyphs uh, on the base give the titles of King Nectanebo I. Um, also mention this detail that the mouths of both have been plugged. Let's move closer in and you can see these plugs. Here's lion number 26 in the official catalog published uh, about 50 years ago for the Egyptian Museum. Um, both been plugged where a hole was drilled in the 1580s to convert the lions into water spouts. Now let's go look at the other one, the mirror image. There we go. It's a good slide of that one. You can see their gray um, Egyptian granite with these nice pink streaks. From the earliest times, lions were associated with a variety of concepts and deities by the Egyptians. They bore well-documented associations with king kingship and ro royal power, of course. They were also regarded as guardians of the eastern and western horizons, and of the gate to the underworld, through which the sun passed each day in the form of the lion god Aker, A-K-E-R. They could also embody the lion god Mihos, son of the feared lioness goddess Sekhmet. Mihos's cult centered on the city of Leontopolis, in the eastern delta. Da, 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 da. Oh. And I also think that this is, helps explain why they were placed in front of temple fronts, which I'll be explaining is where these almost certainly originally set. The pylons of temple festivals were considered horizons, and therefore they're guardians of horizons. It also explains sphinxes being put in those positions, but I don't want to go into that in too much detail. Uh, the inscriptions on the Vatican lions emphasize uh, their status as royal don donations of King Nectanebo. Here is the inscription, the long, slightly longer version on lion number 27. The living Horus, the, the one strong of arm, the one who belongs to the two ladies, the one who causes the two lands to flourish, the Horus of gold, the one who does that which the gods love, the king in up, of upper and lower Egypt, Keper Kara, the son of Ra, the lord of the diadems, Nectanebo. May he live eternally, the one who is beloved of the god Ptah in the city of Rahway, which is not a reference to a town in New Jersey, which <laughs> I still live not far from. Okay. On line number 26, there's a shorter version of the same inscription. So they are essentially matched pairs. The inscriptions are more or less identical, but this is slightly shorter with one clause removed. Um, Egyptian statues. Uh, like these lions, were consecrated in opening of the mouth ceremonies, uh, in which the eyes and ears, as well as the, as well as the mouths, were opened and endowed with life. This kind of returns us to that living thing. I, I think I want to emphasize here that for the Egyptians, at least in terms of the, of, of the ideas that the Egyptians had about the function of art, um, these were considered living things. And these two lions are, are very well made, uh, very fancy ones, which would be particularly uh, expensive, probably, and very, very, you know, uh, a, a kind of thing that was given by the king, you know, quite specifically to 
and Dalish a temple. I'll tell you what temple I think it was in a minute. I should also mention that sculptures were called Sa'ank, because that was the name for the, uh, the occupation of sculpture, which means he who makes alive. Just to sort of bring that up. Um, here's an ectonabo. The first you see is dates here in the fourth century BC, very recent by Egyptian standards. Uh, Nectanebo was the first of three kings of the 30th dynasty, the last native rulers of Egypt. And Egyptologist, basically Robert Bianchi, uh, who's one of the only people who's really written about these from an Egyptological perspective recently, um, believed that the lions were originally set up as guardians in front of a temple in this town, the delta town of Hermopolis, not to be confused with the upper Egyptian town of Hermopolis, or with the other Hermopolis here, Hermopolis Parva, uh, over here on the uh, west delta. Uh, in the in the dental delta town of um, Ba, the Greek Hermopolis in the eastern Mount Delta, this is a somewhat speculative assignment. There are certainly temple statues, however. Nectanebo was quite was really something of a of a prodigious builder and very very popular. His whole dynasty, in fact, was very popular in the period of the Ptolemaic and Roman rule of the uh, of Egypt because they represent they constituted the last native rulers, and so they seem to have had a particular interest along with the predecessor 29th. Um, this is going to be significant for how they get to Rome, I think. Uh, but Nectanebo built all over Egypt. I'll just show you a couple of examples. He built this gate, which was later uh, embellished into a pylon by the Ptolemies here at uh, Philae, in, far down into Upper Egypt. Uh, one of my favorite things that he had anything to do with was the, he constructed the great avenue of sphinxes that connects the Luxor and Karnak temples in Thebes, which is a pretty impressive lion-centric site if you look at sphinxes as a variation on this also associated with the same gods I just mentioned. Um, it's 2,700 meter long avenue originally, 76 meters wide, lined with an estimated 1,350 sphinxes. Not unimpressive. <coughs> he also placed lots and lots of sphinxes in front of the what eventually became known as the Serapeum in Saqqara, uh, which was finished by the Ptolemies and embellished by the Romans afterward. Big collection of these excavated in the 1850s are now in the Louvre. And these also included lions. Now these lions, like the sphinxes at Luxor and Karnak, uh, were um, kind of mass-produced and made out of limestone. They're, they're quite nice, and this one is obviously very close to the style of the other ones. It could also be Ptolemaic, lacking an inscription, but, but not putting inscriptions also helps you produce these things fast, and so they, there's also the possibility of these things being produced for an avenue. Ah, next. Let's flip. Okay, the next big phase in their, in their history is a transfer to Rome. Now, we don't know when this happened, but we do know it occurred sometime during the imperial period. Uh, they were moved from whatever temple they were in, um, in the delta or somewhere else, and transported to Rome. Trying to Keep going. Mind? Yeah, I'm just going to okay. see if I can do something here. Transported to Rome, uh, where they were almost certainly installed in the great Roman sanctuary of Isis known as the Iseum Campense. And the Iseum Campense, which is located roughly here, was located roughly here. Here's the Pantheon. Here's the Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. This is a gate of that complex that was still standing in the 16th century. Uh, this big plaza over here, this great piazza, is where the Collegio Romano later went up and where Pensate's almost, and until very recently, Sede de Roma was located. Up here in the Piazza di San Macuto, you see an obelisk, which is now here in front of the Pantheon, but in the Renaissance period, was located here. It had been set up in the early 1400s, marking the general area of this quarter. It was a huge sanctuary. And literally dozens of 
I'd say, I'd say you know, 10 or so obelisks and, and, and hundreds of other Egyptian sculptures are found there. This is a reconstruction of it produced by the Jesuit Egyptologist slash knower of all things, Athanasius Kircher, for one of his many volumes on ancient Egypt. He actually lived here. He actually lived in it. And he reconstructed it here uh, to commemorate the discovery of another obelisk there in 1666. And you can see he's given a very schematic representation of it. Here's another. <laughs> My, my, my personal favorite of all the reconstructions by Gateski and Travaki. It's in the archive of the American Academy in Rome, but was also published in a wonderful book, The Origins of Those Flip Books, where you have a picture of what the place looks like now, and then this is the reconstruction on this side. And since then, they've been made into the flip books with the clean plastic, so you flip it over. And I love those kind of books. And here we have the Nile and Tiber from the Vatican. The Tiber is now in the Louvre, which were definitely found in the area. A couple of the obelisks that were found there, a fillet type temple. Obviously, Gateski knows about the connection between Nectamabo and Philae. An avenue of sphinxes, obviously evoking Nectamabo's avenue of sphinxes. And there's our lions there on either side. But you notice they keep repeating. So he has lots and lots of them there. Um, it's very fantastic reconstruction. In any case, the next, this is all we can really say is that they were probably in this complex, given where they turned up in front of the Pantheon, which you saw was pretty close to where they are. Um, it's possible, although we can't be certain, that the Nectanabo lines remained above ground throughout the shadowy period from the end of the 4th to the beginning of the 12th century. Um, uh, we, we first clapped, we basically catch a glimpse of them in the 12th century for the first time. Um, uh, it, it's, it's possible, but not absolutely provable. If they had done so, they would join a select group of Roman statues that we are more or less sure were never buried or lost during the long and sometimes dramatic decline of the city in this period including the horse tamers. I'll show you a detail of them in a minute. Here on the Quirinal Hill, and over here by the Lateran, the statue of Marcus Aurelius, the most famous of the unburied statues, but not the only ones that seem to have been never really lost or buried. Here is the famous horse tamers. They're fantastic. Um, I won't go into detail about them, but you can ask me about them if you want. And the famous statue of Marcus Aurelius, a wonderful uh, 15th century representation of that. You can see rather fanciful uh, compared to his actual attire. Uh, he doesn't wear armor. But it's another sort of interesting story. Um, okay. Over time, and this also could have happened to the necked naval alliance, it is possible that they were buried at some point, but that they turned up in the area of the Isis temple during the process of some sort of construction operation. This seems to have happened, or might have happened, with sculptures like Pasquino, the talking statue, um, who appears where he was re-erected, where he was erected in 1501, although he seems to have already begun speaking or talking before this. I have a whole chapter on this that I've finished. Uh, I written, wrote a version of it, um, with, which um, is going to come out in a book, but I'm elaborating on that. And uh, uh, this is a fascinating story of a, of a statue who's been speaking in the form of verses attached to his base for over 500 years and saying very nasty things about the popes and the later rulers of Rome from Napoleon to Berlusconi. It's, it's a great story and full of obscenity, and probably in that way would have been a more colorful talk, but here he is anyway. Um, or celebrity art sculptures like the Akawan group, which came up to, uh, out of the ground on the 14th of January, 1506, and became a celebrity overnight, and also began to be the object more than the actual speaking vessel of, of poetry. Uh, there's a really interesting theme which I'm, in, I'm currently researching about, and you know, I don't know where the question is where to begin or end with this. There's an enormous amount of poetry written 
either about sculptures or especially in the voice of sculptures, which is a great Renaissance genre inspired by ancient models. Anyway, here it is, Laocoon, as you all know. Why is it so famous? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> now, okay. As I fly ahead here, because I'm trying to get to the main back of the lines, this is, I wasn't sure how much of this to do, so um, let me say this back to my text. Um, by the first decades of the 16th century, countless specimens of ancient sculpture were being unearthed in, in Rome in a reg on a regular basis. Broken pieces filled the courtyards and gardens of notable and relatively modest collectors. Writing about in 1550, the painter, architect, and antiquarian Piero Ligorio, uh, referring to an, an apparent error to a passage he associated with the Roman author, the ancient Roman author Pliny the Elder, described the, cat, the ancient capital's vast and diverse sculpture statuary as a, quote, second population, unquote, whose numbers must have, at the height of empire, seemed to rival or even surpass the number of its living citizens. As Peter Stewart has recently shown in a pretty great study on um, statues in Roman society, ain't, this actually doesn't seem to be far, the truth, far from the truth even in reality. Ancient Romans, Rome's population of statues, variously describable as a forest or a crowd, was a truly prodigious one that in some cases filled streets and public spheres to the point of bursting. There are accounts of, of citizens writing to the Roman government asking them to clear a piazza or a street because they can't get across it. You can't walk across it because there are so many sculptures in this particular, in this case, on the Capitoline Hill. Um, the sense of a potentially limitless population of human and animal sim simulacra is one of the fundamental impressions I associate with a tour of the great public collections of antiquities in Europe, especially, I think, the ones in Rome. Here's just a good, you know, because it was a good shot of the Galleria delle Statue in, um, in the Vatican um, with the famous poetry-speaking statue down here, Cleopatra. But if you consider that we might have 10%, maybe 5%, maybe 2% of the sculptures from Rome, and if you consider how many of them we know of, which is numberless, <coughs> impossible to count, it must have been crowded. And here I represent it with another somewhat comedy image of real public sculpture juxtaposed with these things. And also, I guess I was trying to also evoke, if you've ever been in this location, you know there's also a living population of people trying to throw, throw in coins, but also trying to pick the pockets of people who come here to throw in coins. And the whole thing is just this sort of clamor of sculpted and, and flesh uh, beings. Okay, so back to our story. Um, the first sighting we have, the actual document of these sculptures located anywhere, appears around 1200 um, in a description of Rome by the English um, traveler Magister Gregorius, um, who singled them out in a description of the Pantheon, which he admired very much and wrote a lengthy description of, uh, commenting on the large porphyry basin, as well as lions and other statues made of this same material that he saw in front of the great temple. And this drawing actually, of course, since it dates from over uh, 300 years later, shows the lines after a couple of restoration uh, pro programs. And so we don't know how they were set up in the Piazza then, but lions and porf the Porphyry Basin is here, along with some other things. These were set up on columns by Leo X. I'll talk more about that. But right now, we do get a sense of them being here, at least. So anyway, that's my setup. Um, during the next century, that is the 13th, lions, our lions provided models for a series of Leonine sculptures produced by Cosmetes sculptors in Rome and its vicinity, including the white marble lion at, on the porch of Santi Apostoli here, <coughs> signed actually on by Vasilecticus in the position of the inscription, which is rather amazing uh, thought uh, that they're actually putting an inscription here where they saw hieroglyphs before. And this crazy 
wonderful white marble sphinx in the in Viterbo, in the museum in Viterbo, which dates to 1286 and also has a nice inscription on its base. You can see that this is somewhat free adaptations, but nevertheless, that's the idea. And I do want to bring up this one little point. I wasn't sure how what kind of uh, time I'd have, what kind of audience I'd have here. Paired lions flanking church portals. And the Pantheon, of course, in 1200 was a church. Uh, the Church of Santa Maria della Rotunda, Santa Maria ad Martires, etc. Paired lions flanking church portals and often bearing columns, uh, which is how the preceding sculptures once function, are a common feature of Romanesque, Gothic, Italian uh, protero or porch portal. And recent scholarship on this by Giovanna de Apollonia and others has shown, um, in addition to their obvious function as vigilant guardians of the sacred gate, these lions also car carried strong associations with royal and ecclesiastical and civil justice, derived from a tapestry of ancient and medieval traditions, but also the way in which these portals often function in these churches. I'm showing you this one just because it's nice and intact, the Porta Regia in Modena, which is a wonderful example. Um, from the Gothic period, um, where ceremonial events, including the holding of trials and proclamations and sentences, often took place at these portals. And so there were associations with justice and lines. Now, this is something that can be connected to Rome. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's an interesting sort of sub-category sub of this. Um, I'm showing you here is a lion attacking a horse. It's a sculpture which now is in a pretty garden behind the Capitoline Museum. And you look out at it from the room where Marcus Aurelius is through a pane glass window. Um, by the, by the middle of the 14th century, at the latest, and probably at least a century before that, it was installed before the steps of the Senator's Palace on the Campidoglio, and this is where death sentences were pronounced and carried out. And they used to actually use it um, as a kind of a, what's the word I'm gonna, almost like a stockade. They would actually tie people to it and cover them with honey and, and, and hurl insults at, at people who had been convicted of things, not for death penalties as part of their punishment. So they would actually be a pillory, so to speak, on this sculpture. Um, here it is. This bells in with all kinds of other notions about associations of Roman power with the lion and the idea, which was prevalent in the 12th and 13th centuries, that Rome itself was shaped like a lion because it prevailed over other animals like a king, and Rome was the king of cities. And so you can see that, in addition to all the other associations we can make with these lions up in front of the Pantheon, one could associate them with. Romanness and all kinds of other stuff. And as we'll see at some points, this actually seems starts to happen. Now the next real notification of something happening with the lion we have comes from the 1440s and 1450s uh, when we know they were restored uh, by order of Pope Eugenius IV. Um, Flavio Biondo reports this in the Roma Instaurata. He says that Eugenius um, discovered and repaired the lions, or restored these lions, depending on how you want to read the passage, and when he, when he cleared out the piazza of debris. Now you can see the piazza in front of the Pantheon, which is looking rather funky back then with this medieval bell tower on it and stuff, and had market stalls in front of it, and a market around the lions too here, although this is later, again from the 16th century, that debris was piling up, and they could have actually been buried, I suppose, if they were lower. That might be why Leo X put them on these columns later. After the restoration is when we get our next somewhat surprising record of the lions, which is that their hieroglyphs begin to attack attention as, Rome, as uh, humanists, scholars of ancient languages and of antiquity in general, uh, produce the first copies of their hieroglyphs from the base. Now these hieroglyphs, 
to make a long story short, um, have, were mentioned by people going back as far as Momsen, as being in manuscripts uh, associated with Chiriaco of Ancona and other humanists of mid-1400s. But they were misidentified, associated with trips to Egypt, and, and given wrong folio numbers. And I'm working with an Italian colleague uh, in, in prep, just, just before the book came out. I was able to add a little bit of this to the book. Uh, we were able to get our hands on these folios in, in Paris, and I was able to identify these inscriptions as the ones on the lion number 26. And you see, this is Michele Fabrizio Ferrarini, who was active in the 1470s to four, or about early 1490s, North Italian humanist, a Carmelite, who compiled these uh, inscriptions. And I've given them each, you know, where they're all from. I'm going to now take you on a tour and show you that this is the case. It actually isn't. If you follow these lines long enough, you don't even have to be very good at hieroglyphs to recognize them as the, as the same ones, because they obviously line up. There's line one, line two, the frontal panel. So we have to forget about line three, because that's the long back panel, which is up against the wall. And I can't get a photograph of that now. But it's recognizable from other copies. And this is the back here. Right? See it? So there you go. Ferrarini also took those hieroglyphs and adapted them into decorations as a, as a border motif, as you see here, in another manuscript. So you're already getting a certain amount of play with this. What's interesting about Ferrarini is he's taking them and turning them into a border, but he follows precisely, starting with this, which is the original, uh, which is the front panel, uh, in the order that he listed them, he taped them into another manuscript. So it's pretty cool to look at that that way. It's fascinating. The next big event is another papal restoration under Pope Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici, um, in about 1515, which is commemorated by an inscription that was once, I don't, I'm just, because I've been skipping ahead, I'm just going to get to that, let me read you the inscription here, um, which was appended to the urn, this porphyry urn, which was now considered by uh, antiquarians in Rome at the time to be the urn of Agrippa. That is, it was thought that since this was in front of the Pantheon, that this could well have been with its appropriate royal purple, probably came from one of the baths nearby, the baths of Agrippa, um, was the sarcophagus of Agrippa himself, okay? And so, whose inscription is across the front of the Pantheon. And the lions are stored on either side. Um, here we have the inscription, which is now on the porch of the Pantheon, embedded with a bunch of other inscriptions there, which tells us that Pope Leo X, that most, that most far-sighted prince ordered a most elegant vase of Numidian stone to be set up once more in this fashion, and he embellished and be embellished to prevent it from being spoiled and deteriorating with dirt gathering through neglect. Bartoli and Bartolomeus Valla and Raimundus Capoferris, the curators, had this done. So he did it through these officers. That's, that's absolutely my favorite drawing of them by Francisco de Holanda, um, a Portuguese artist who um, was visiting in Rome in the 14th uh, 30s and 40s, and he's a really interesting guy anyway. And his drawing is just wonderful, which is used for the poster. Um, Leo X, interest in lions, doesn't, you don't have to reach too far to come up with explanations for this given his papal name, right? I mean, that's, the minute he becomes pope and picks the name Leo X, lions appear everywhere in all the decorations. He's, he's described as a lion in, in, a, in a thousand ways. He's associated with Hercules and the lion skin. The Marzocco Lion of Florence, because he's obviously as divine divinity from Florence, and all this sort of stuff. And lions begin to proliferate everywhere in his decorations. I will just go to select ones uh, and show you some other things that go on here. For example, in the loggia of Leo X, 
where there are many lions and tigers and other animal uh, big cat creatures. But I'm speaking of these lions right here, which are based on the ones he had recently had restored in front of the Pantheon. Now, uh, he had had them placed on these columns probably to get them away from debris, right? Here they appear um, on this tablet, uh, as you can see here. I'll give you a detail of it. It shows studio assistants at work, you know, maybe Raphael's assistants, idealized representation of them. And here we have those crazy looking lions. And I cannot make my mind up if these faces are human or feline. That is, if they're sphinxy or lion either. Quite odd looking. And some engravings of them that were made centuries later show them with human faces. Anyway, they're in very bad shape because they're on the external pilasters there. Leal also took this plan and basically seems to have looked at the lions in town that were worthy of, of, of restoring in some way and, and applied it to them. And what's interesting is that there's two other sets that are Egyptian. One is an uninscribed Egyptian pair that were over at the latter and in front of Marcus Aurelius. He hadn't moved yet to the Capitoline Hill. He was going his way in a few years from after this drawing was done. This was probably done around 1515 placed on the same kind of half columns. You would know them if you visit Rome today because in the 1580s they were installed at the base of the Coordinata of the Capitoline Hill next to Santa Maria Aricelli, this great staircase, and made into water spouts, although they're not functioning as water spouts here, sadly. And since then, they've been copied a zillion times. In Piazza del Popolo, you can climb their copies of them um, at the base of the obelisk of Augustus in the Piazza del Popolo. So these date to 1823, and we're almost in Trafalgar Square country again. Leo also took a pair of sphinxes. You can barely see them here. They're just little blobs, really, of fresco, very, very crudely done. Um, but they're described, uh, starting in 1513, as being set up on either sides of the steps of the Palazzo Senatorial. We actually know a lot about these sphinxes. They're now in the Louvre. And here's one of them, of King Achorus. The other one was, these are 29th dynasty kings from the dynasty previous to the 30th. And uh, this is a drawing by our friend Francisco de Holanda. Oh, he's actually taken the hieroglyphic inscription from the other end, which was in better shape. You can see this has been restored. This is all modern here. Um, and uh, it, and fixed it up to do that. These sphinxes of this sort also appear in Leo X, the same loggia where we saw the Pantheon lions. And so I could go into a whole riff on this, but I won't. All I'm going to say is, is that they become kind of partners in crime and start appearing in various places next to each other. So you get the navel lion motif here, Lion 26, with one of those lions, surrounded by bands of hieroglyphic inscription like we saw in Ferrarini. I don't know what the connection is between the 1490s and the 1520s version of doing this. And I can also mention that these are from the base of one of the sphinxes, not from one of the lions at all. But it is fascinating up here in Mantua at the Palazzo Te. They also appear as matching partners in manuscripts where, uh, starting in the middle of the 16th century, collections of hieroglyphic inscriptions and drawings of Egyptian monuments were actually put into discrete chapters of uh, antiquarian books. They also appear, these are wonderful, by the way. I, I love those drawings. Um, they also appear in the background of paintings, like this one by Herman Postumus, uh, a landscape with Roman ruins, almost voracious time, and you, NVSH, destroy everything. A little closer up, as you can see here. They, get, they make their way into print media. Here they are in an image of the Pantheon, and I love this image because you basically have a case where the lions, as you saw were in the other drawings by Heemskerk and the French artist, we're actually facing the Pantheon in this arrangement. We don't know if they were before this. And so in order to show the front of one, this line has just basically been turned around. And this is state two, which we, because the original one didn't show them. And so 
Um, the the Biafrase and Lafferty put out a second version of this to include these elements, obviously because I guess they thought they would be of interest to collectors. In a variation on this, there's a drawing, and this represents a, a weird visual parallel to some stuff that's appearing in antiquarian manuscripts that I've been pouring around with, uh, where the urn, the, the, this uh, basin, is placed up on top of the Pantheon, and the lions are installed as acroteria on either end, as if they were part of the original decoration, obviously taking the Laffrey Beatrice print as the, as the model. It's quite curious, and corresponds to some uh, antiquarian speculation on how they might have been connected to the building that was being written in manuscripts at the time. Here's our last parting shot of them in this location, facing the portico with the, with the basin in between. We're going to say goodbye because uh, this is 1575. They've only got about 10 years left here. If we go back in the 1600s, uh, we would see the basin was still there, but the lions had gone. And the basin would last here for a little while longer until about 17. It went into the porch, and then in 1740 it became a sarcophagus of the Pope, Clement XII in the Lateran, and that's the fate of that. Where were they? Well, they were transferred to a fountain, a new fountain by Pope Sixtus V, uh, the Aqua Felice Fountain, the Moses Fountain of 1585-87 in the Piazza di San Bernardo. I actually think it's with this transfer they become even more famous, more popular. I'm going to try to convince you of this uh, in this section of it, uh, the second to last section of the talk. This was commissioned uh, by a named after Pope Sixtus V, whose name is Felice Pareti, Pareti, whose coat of arms was a rampant lion. And Felice, of course, was compared to Felis, Leo, and the lion. He liked lions a lot, and he puts lions all over everything, just like Leo X. So he snatches Leo's lions and moves them to his fountain, um, which is infamous statue of Moses here and other stuff. It's a magnificent fountain. Please don't look too closely at the lions. I'll explain that later, why they're doubled. Uh, originally, they were set up, the, the Egyptian ones were set up in the middle bay, drilled to function as water spouts. He's also the one who did those lions at the Capitoline, did the same time. And then white marble lions, taken from the uh, transept facade, the north transept of the Lateran, were placed on either side. We don't know if these were medieval or ancient, okay, because they don't survive. Here's a later view that gives you a sense of how they function. These, I think in this position, the lions really become a part of something like a community. This fountain provided water for drinking and washing for an area that had been deprived of water. The restoration of this aqueduct meant that people could who moved into this area, and some of them in this area, which also saw the installation of the Quattro Fontane fountains, could actually come here and get water from lions. <laughs> although most of the water they got in the side basins over there. Now, in this position, the lions attract, continue to attract a lot of attention. First of all, from hieroglyph people, like Athanasius Kerker, who probably saw this publication from 1607 of hieroglyphic inscriptions from Rome, where they appear obviously taken from the Laffery print. Um, Kerker's uh, extensive discussion of the lions and his great monumental thousand-page treatise on Egyptian antiquity and hieroglyphs, um, Oedipus Aegyptiacus, is a highly speculative and imaginative interpretation of the lions as embodiments of a god he seems to have invented from a forged Arabic text, um, who he calls Mopfa, the Nile represented by Leo, the lion, and the flood in July of the Nile River. And so he provides a hieroglyphic interpretation of their meaning in relation to the Nile flood 
and a word-for-word decipherment of the signs according to that basis. And also, I love these little drawings of the tails. It's one of my favorite things in the world of the representation of these crazy things. Moving a little bit on, we have uh, an interest in purely antiquarian literature, uh, like uh, Champini. I don't know if Tony's ever <coughs> probably know this, this text. It's an interesting one. Early example of interest in early Christian and Byzantine art in Italy, um, produced by this guy, Giovanni Giustino Champini, who was a, a scientist as well as an antiquarian, um, who did a, a study of the porch lions on the Romanesque churches and Gothic churches of Rome, and postulated that these lions now on the Aqua Felice, had been the models for them, which turns out to be probably true. In the 18th century, the Im Im images inspired by these lions proliferate. And I'll just show you a few examples. In the Church of San Rocco, near another nice fountain, inside is a tomb, which I need to find out more about. Don't know who the artist was who did this, of this car uh, Cardinal Paracciani with lions as the ports. In Giovanni Paolo Panini's paintings, often the lions appear um, as emblems of Rome or as detailed elements and backgrounds. Here we see this great painting of ancient Rome in the Met. with a nice location right underneath the Laocoon, which also stands for ancient Rome. Here we are. You can see here one of them. In Hubert Robert, they're installed in this crazy capriccio on this gigantic staircase of this impossible bath basilica thing that he's invented with an obelisk at the end, but corresponding to their positions on the fountain, which is kind of nice. This is now in Chicago. And my favorite is the Groys painting, uh, John Baptiste Groys of the Broken Jug, uh, which is now in the Louvre. And I, uh, while looking for this on the web, looking for images, although this doesn't come from Web Gallery of Art, but art historians are undoubtedly familiar with the Web Gallery of Art. This is the caption from the Web Gallery of Art. One sees immediately that Groys was concerned to convey the eroticism, convey eroticism in the Rococo manner. The badly proportioned lion of the well in the antique style being only a fashionable attribute. Which I say, how dare he? <laughs> I love that, I must say. If I could pick one painting of these to have, that's it. Okay. Very interesting development in the 18th century, however, is the is the introduction of the Egyptian lions as a rare example of agreement between contemporary uh, scholars of the history of art. And, and I have two of these sort of polemic writings of the 18th century that I want to share with you. Uh, the first one is by Johann Joachim Winkelmann, famous uh, German uh, from, uh, who was working in Rome at the time, who wrote the famous a history of the of ancient art, uh, which was the first real art history book that was based on historicist notions, unless you want to count something like Vasari or Bellori before. But in any case, this history of ancient art, which was a um, defense uh, and a celebration of Greek art. As I put it here, the lions attracted the admiration not only of artists, but of intellectuals and theorists who had otherwise widely conflicting views of what was good in the arts in general and in Egyptian art in particular. These included Johann Johann Winkelmann, the great promoter of the superiority of the art of the Greeks, who viewed Egyptian art for the most part as hopelessly frozen in a primitive and inarticulate state by the strict religious laws that governed its production. But he made an exception for the lions of Nectanebo. Quote, the characteristics and distinguishing features of the Egyptian style noted here 
both the delineation of forms with nearly straight lines and the minimal indication of bones and muscle suffer an exception when it comes to animals in Egyptian art. Among the latter, especially to be cited, are the two lions of the Fontana dell'Acqua Felice. These animals are made with much understanding, with an elegant multiplicity of softly changing outlines and fluid transitions between separate parts. With regard to figures, one might imagine the system of ancient art in Egypt as similar to the system of government in Crete or Sparta, where one was not allowed to deviate as much as a finger's breadth from the ancient ordinance of the lawgivers. Animals would not have been subsumed under this rational framework. In other words, statues of animals weren't restricted by the same laws that restricted the representation of the figure, which is why you can see this much greater naturalism and power in these pieces. Winkelmann's contemporary and theoretical rival, the Venetian-born etcher, engraver, architect, and antiquarian, uh, fantasist, as I would call him, Giovanni Battista Piranesi, held the works of the Egyptians and other non-Greek peoples, notably the Etruscans, in far greater esteem and argued his case in the trilingual passages of his 1769 treatise on the decoration of chimneys, which included a number of Egyptianizing designs, and what he called an apologetic dis discussion in defense of the Egyptian and Etruscan architecture, from which I'm quoting here, 1769, in which Piranesi says this. I have in view, among other works of theirs, the two lions or leopards which served to adorn the fountain of the Felician aqueduct in Rome together with two others studiously copied, both as to action and design from nature, that is, worked in the Grecian manner. What majesty in the Egyptian ones, what gravity and wisdom, what union and modification of parts? Exclamation point, original. How artfully are those parts set which are agreeable to architecture, while those are suppressed which are not adaptation to it? Another exclamation point. Those other lines, the ones on the side, on the contrary, which are exactly copied from nature, and to which the, the Grecian ones, as he calls them, and to which the artist capriciously gave what attitudes he pleased, what have they to do there? They serve only to diminish the great effect which the, which the Egyptian ones give to the architecture of the fountain, which, however, is not one of the most elegant. The fountain may not be great. The lines on the sides, which are Greek style, are terrible. But those lines in the middle are great. And what's interesting to me is that when you look at Piranese's engraving of the Aqua Felice, and of course there's all kinds of other things, that's the church of Santa Maria della Vittoria, which has been made into a giant basilica here. He makes things big. But you can notice that he's, he's one of the only artists to actually carefully distinguish between the style of the side lions and the very Egyptian ones in the center. You can actually tell the difference. He really takes this seriously, and it appears in his work too. Okay, last chapter, which is both a decline and a great, um, and a great sort of story of redemption. In 1822, the dawn of modern Egyptology, Champollion, aided by the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, publishes his first translations of hieroglyphic inscriptions on no and notes on ancient Egyptian grammatical system, which make it possible to identify and date Egyptian monuments for the first time since antiquity. By this time, in the wake of the Napoleonic campaign in Egypt, 1798 to the early 1800s. Um, great floods of Egyptian antiquities are now entering the collections of Europe. Uh, enormous collections are being founded in Paris, in London, and in Turin. These museums are being founded in the 18-teens and 1820s. And these, uh, these collections are filled with loot that's still being loaded onto ships and brought back. Colossal statues, mummies of all types. 
In Rome, the Pope, looking over his once greatest work, Museum of Ancient Art in the world at the Vatican, Pope Gregory XVI, sees that there's maybe a need for an upgrade. And what he needs, first of all, of course, is an Etruscan museum, which he adds, which also includes Greek bases. Uh, and so gets that, gets that into that idea. But it also, and especially, an Egyptian museum, the Museo Gregoriano Egizio, which is founded in 1837 and opens to the public on the 2nd of February, 1839. And this is from the book published, an engraving from the book published showing the opening, opening view, views of the gallery at the opening. And you see Egyptian revival style architecture that was featured here, which is also becoming quite en vogue. He's actually a little bit ahead of the curve here. This is a good early example of this. Uh, and we look past some mummy cases that had come in from a private collection. We look down into this first room, the Sala dei Leoni, and we see our lions flanking a statue of the mother of Ramses II, which was on the capital line before this. Here's a view of the early 20th century of the same room before it was modified, um, with the neck and able lions flanking the colossal statue of Queen Tuya, mother of Ramses II. And this is a selection of more or less authentic Egyptian <coughs> sculptures. Uh, they'd all been found in Rome. Uh, and uh, they contrast with another room, this is from the original booklet, another room of Roman, dedicated to Roman imitations of Egyptian art. So they set up one room of authentics and the other of imitations, which is cool, because they've actually figured out how to distinguish them. And it's actually one of the great cool things about this museum. Uh, these have come in from the Capitoline Museum, where the first Egyptian gallery had opened in 1748, which had almost all fake statues in it. What happens is that the lions had been yanked from the Aqua Felice, taken off, and casts were installed along with the white marble ones on either end. When the casts were made, and I think they are casts, although they're said to be made of gray marble, Bijo marble, I think it's cast marble. At first I thought they were lead. Rather than imitate the Greek ones on either side, they just doubled the Egyptian ones, because they're the only good ones anyway. Get the idea? That's 1846. So we have repaired copies, still providing water, as we see in the pictures I just took not that long ago. Also at this time, casts proliferate. This is what I've discovered through a tip from a friend of mine in a, in a house, or a palace, not far from the fountain, uh, the Palazzo del Albani uh, del Drago, um, which was displayed in the, in the bottom foyer. And the card on it said it was cast in plaster and mixed with porphyry chips. Presumably dates to 1846. This is the great mystery part of my research, is this proliferation of copies around the time these are made. Here's a, of all the ones I found, I'm only going to waste time because you know, time's run, well running out. This snow-covered one in Stockholm, which I think could have been done around the same time. As I said, great collections are forming in London. Here's the Great Hall of the British Museum, which includes statues and lions of Amenhotep III. And here I'm going to cut a little because I want to get to the happy part of the story, but first we must go down. The, the discovery of lions in Nubia of Anhotet III, these lions and things found from Egypt started to gain a reputation because they were older, associated with better kings, and in big fancy galleries in places like London, like the Prudhoe Lions, and even became the uh, features in Victorian painting like this one of Israel and Egypt by Sir Edward John Pointer, as you see here. The, the neck to navel lines start to fade out, and only this rather tragic painter, Sir John William, God, John William Godward, who ended up killing himself in 1922 because his Alma Tadema style paintings uh, had gone out of fashion, 
um, was painted during his stay in Rome, and he comes up with a version of one of these lines. It looks more like one of the copies, but it doesn't really matter. It's a, I like the melancholy, because it sets up my last sort of tragic point, my lost in the museum. What seems to have happened with the lions is that in the 20, as you get to the late 19th and 20th century, nobody really seems to have any interest in them anymore. There still appear as garden ornaments and things and garden ornament uh, catalogs, but, but they fade. I think this may have something to do also with what happens with the Vatican uh, Museum. They, the galleries get modernized, by which I would tend to mean uglyized, uh, in more modernist, brutalizing sort of displays, as you can see here. Not exactly appealing. And the whole, they just, they just, they just fade. It's, it's, they're eclipsed and, and sort of retreat into sort of corners of ugly galleries at the Vatican. It's a sad fate. Luckily, in the 80s, the galleries are renovated. This is the room of the Roman imitations as reinstalled by Jean-Claude Grenier in 89. It's a crazy idea of a reconstruction of the Serapium Canopus in uh, Hadrian's Villa. It's completely fanciful, but at least it looks nice. And they found the, uh, they found the Egyptian decoration underneath the ugly walls that they had put up since, and so all that was restored. The Room of the Lions was restored too, but the lions weren't put there. Um, this statue of Anubis now stands before the fresco with the pyramid, the lion number 27 you see in front of here, so this has all been redone. Instead, after they went on tour as a Vatican treasure show in the early 80s, I don't know if anyone ever saw that, but they had Apollo Belvedere, yeah. went to the Met. They got to be in that show, right? I saw them there. And when they came back, instead of sticking them into the galleries, they stuck them out here in the newly opened Cortile de la Pina. As you can see, on either side of a, of a fountain, with a mask fountain here, okay? In this position, restored, as I would say, as pendants to a fountain, which is kind of nice. Uh, restored to the elements, and I wouldn't call this exactly a public space, but it is a semi-public space. People who crowd the museum to get in through the inadequate hours of the Vatican Museum, if you know what it's like, it opens and closes before you've even got through your ticket check. Um, so by the time you get here, you know, you're running around like a maniac, but here, see, it rains on them, the sun shines, they meet the sun god, and people encounter them. Is this the end of their story, I ask myself? Well, it's the end of my chapter, because, but I think not, because what I, I think is really nice is that, that now that they're back in something like a presentable location, operating as part of an ensemble with things the way they had for so long, they now have new admirers, and you can go on the internet and scour about, and I'll just share two with you that I think are very charming, um, images of them, <laughs> with something like, I guess, what I would call a new social life. That's the end of the talk. Thanks for putting up with it. It's a bit long. Thank you so much, Lights Brian. And Good. Uh, we do have some uh, time for questions and discussion. Comments? Yeah, almost a half hour. So, shoot. Are there any comments and questions? There must be. Carlos, I wrote that. Yes, go. Yes. Um, do you think there's any possibility of a conversation with, say, the figure of St. Mark? Because I know oh, in yeah. medieval art. When I go to Venice, that's going to happen. Yeah, I was, I, I was wondering if, if that was something that you were going to add, because especially with the whole scroll coming out of and, you know. Well, you know that the St. Mark on the column 
in the Piazzetta in Venice. And there's St. Theodore on the other column with the crocodile, right? That was the place of justice in Venice. That was the place, originally on those columns, it was just two lines. Then they put St. Theodore. Then they kind of jazzed up the lion to look more like St. Mark's lion with the wings and the bow. They were apparently two golden lions. That's what the first description say, two golden lions on the columns. And they used to not only call about sentences there, but they actually used to kill people there in front of them. Now what I don't know, and I'd love to know, is if what kind of public ceremonies happened in Piazza della Rotunda. Probably not much, it was a market. Although they used to kill people in Campo dei Fiori, and that was a market, you know, a flower market. So it was a food market in the in Piazza della Rotunda. But yes, I mean, I think, that, see, this is the thing. Lions as images of royal power, ferocious animals in ge general, the Perugia griffin, um, I think it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. And so the question is then where do you, not so much whether you would connect it, but where you would stop. Does that make sense? Because there's lions all over Venice, great ones. They're in the other version from Venice, the short one that just deals with the Renaissance now. Um, but yeah, I mean, sure, why not? Um, along those lines, I was yeah. going to ask you about Florence, because oh, yes. in Florence you have the Marzocco. Yeah. At, on the Loggia dei Lanzi, you have the two Marzocchi, one from ancient Rome and yeah. one of Renaissance. Which came from the Villa Medici. Reproduction. Yeah. Yeah. And then when uh, Leo X is elected Pope, of course, you know, lines explode like crazy all over yeah. Florence. And I'm, I'm sure I shared with you one of the manuscripts yeah. from the cathedral, it's, right? It's lion central lions. with Leo X. And, yeah. with the, and of course with Florence in general because of the Marzocco. Yeah, right. So, I But mean, even before Leo X, even yeah. before 1513, um, you know, you have a huge number of lions yeah. all over Florence. And I'm wondering, you know, does this, is this in some way related to, you know, Florence as daughter of Rome? I mean, is this a conscious conscious effort a good to question. You know, show the connection with Rome, or is it... My understanding about the origins of Marzocco is, is that there was an old statue that was supposed to, of a lion that was supposed to be the pet of God Mars, and that's why he's called Marzocco, right? Because he's, mm -hmm. he, he's Mars's buddy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And that... Is there a Guelph connection is another sort of question, because mm -hmm. I think the lion is a Guelph symbol. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the Marzocco predates that. See, this is the thing about lines. You can make the, I mean, the whole point of the paper, and I was kind of rushing through the last because I tried to do too much, but which I always do, but is that they're mutable. They can change. That they can mean the same thing, but they can change. Just like the Statue of David changed from a Republican thing to a, an image of the Medici. So they get reappropriated, yeah. in other words. So what's interesting about the practice in Florence, though, in the parallel to Rome, which is exactly contemporary with it, is in Florence at the Palazzo della Signoria, by what, the end of the 13th century, right? Mm -hmm. Beginning of the 4th, well, yeah, end of the 13th, right? 1298. Yeah. They have not only this lion, which they would make people kiss the butt of, if they were, you had to kiss the ass of the Marzocco if you were a captured prisoner and stuff. They used to, they used to execute people in front of that. Savonarola mm -hmm. was executed in front of that Marzocco. I mean, this is what they, what they would do. They also had a lion pen in the back, where the Via dei Leone yeah. is, right? Yeah. Where, where the lions were kept, and you could hear them roaring in the piazza. On the Capitoline Hill, they had a lion pen up there, too. And it was given by um, <coughs> Charles of Anjou as a gift. The first one was given as a gift to the Romans by Charles of Anjou and placed in a cage up on the Capitoline Hill. Mm -hmm. So it's funny how they so both the cities are, are using the lion as a symbol of 
sort of state power and justice. Actually, three, because Venice is doing it too. So when you've got three, and then you've got places like Modena where they're carrying out trials, mm -hmm. and where they're at least, you know, where they're convicting people in front of the cathedral portal with the lions. So mm -hmm. there's four. Mm -hmm. Well, the lions are, of course, connected to Solomon. And King Solomon and the throne Judgment. of justice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It, it goes back forever. So iconographically, yeah. though, there are some distinctions, right? Because the Mazzocco lion is always kind of in this pose, um, often with you know, the spear under yeah, the right yeah. paw. Sort of seated up, or else then the, you have the extended one. The lion of one. Venice has yeah. often the, the gospel of yeah, Mark. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, there's a bunch of lions there, um, which are just brought in as pets, like those famous ones from Athens, you know, yeah. those ones at the arsenal. Yeah. Those are magnificent. You know, you don't know if you know these, but oh, at, the yes, Arsenale, yes, I know. at the Arsenale in Venice are two enormous white marble lions. Uh, one is from Athens and the other is like from Piraeus. Like they brought them back from the sack of Athens where they blew up the Parthenon that they shelled. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ones there. They're Greek, so these are ancient Greek ones. They're huge and they're displayed in Venice as trophies. And during the Renaissance period, by, by the time you've got Leo the Tenth, the and people know that the antiquarians have figured out these are Egyptian, and they've obviously figured out by the 15th century, which has not been known, but clearly when they're copying those hieroglyphs, mm -hmm. Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And so they figured out these are Egyptian, and what, what are they associated with? I had to kind of skip it over. What Leo is thinking, I think, too, is that the Pantheon is a monument associated with Agrippa. And who's Agrippa? The adopted heir son-in-law of Augustus. Mm -hmm. Who does Leo like to have himself compared to? Augustus, all the time. He's the new Augustus. His predecessor was Julius II, the second Julius. He's the new Augustus, right? So mm -hmm. it's the second Julius Caesar succeeded by the new Augustus, mm -hmm. the Prince of Peace. And so these lions are, prob are almost certainly being thought of. I don't think it takes too much speculation because a few years later they're saying they're spoils of the conquest immediately. Mm -hmm. And who, who conquered Egypt? Agrippa. Mm -hmm. you know, who won the Battle of Actium? Agrippa. So it makes perfect sense if you look at it that way. You have to kind of put together, the problem with earlier Renaissance is you have to put this glue together and you don't often, so people don't come out and say, this is what it means. But you can surmise it. They're not, yeah. Is there ever a struggle over conflicted meanings? All the time. Well, they mean multi, I think they mean, mean like real genuinely conflicted. Right. Where it's an object of worship, say, for one group of people, but well, it was for the secular meanings. Well. Um, well, at least of sacred. I don't think they're sacred really in, anymore in, after that, in, after the Isis temple. Right, right. But they are. What's the word? They're not exactly. They're not exactly modest things. They're symbols of empire and power, and, you know, and perhaps of justice, which can be divine justice. When they go to the fountain, though, I think th what's happening there. And that's, I'm very interested in the transformation of them into sort of life-giving spot, water spouts, you know, because that's, that's interesting. It's like you take something which is part of a public square where people bought food, you yank them out and bring them to a new public square where you want people to live, and you drill them and so they provide water. And you've taken other lions at the Capitol and done the same thing. So lions are becoming, as a symbol of Pope Sixtus V, it makes sense, but they're also becoming part of the public health. These are acts of generosity. These are... This is the Pope taking care of the people and displaying, you know, transforming them into life-giving objects. Does that make Aren't sense? Aren't there lines here, Dr. Manele? 
Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a good point. Good point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to your quote of social yeah. life of statues, I mean, in a sense, by turning them into water spouts, it's, it's socializing. Yeah, I think right? that's what it, makes them really... interaction. I think that's why in the 18th century, I think they're the most... Uh, that, you know, 16th century, uh, you're getting a lot of antiquarian stuff, and it's a little harder to get a sense of what people think about. You know, it would be nice to be able to go and do a kind of a, you know, a man-in-the-street interview with a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 1600, when those things are relatively new. Nice. <laughs> what do you think about the, the, the lions? Or to go back to the Pantheon and say 1300 and say, what do you think about the, it would be great, but we just don't know. Bakers and yeah. what about the people, people pulling people cars. People lost them, you know, yeah. where they got taken away. Yeah, what, yeah, what are the people in the, in the, in the neighborhood of the Pantheon I think when they were yanked away? Probably didn't think much of it. I, yeah. You just touched upon something that yeah. was the question that I was yeah. going to, which was, because um, I also think the, the movement to that fountain is the, yeah. probably the most interesting it element is, of yeah. this. And and it was exactly what were the sort of city planning and, and development politics of the moment in terms of wanting to take those up the wow. I mean, the plan had begun with the previous Pope Gregory XIII, and the idea was to restore this aqueduct which had been broken, that whole section and of town. And how many people were actually living up there right now? Before? Not many. Uh-huh, okay. But people wanted to. And people were buying up property in the 1570s up there because they were already working on restoring the waterworks out there. There were remote monasteries and churches up there, mm -hmm. and, you know, those people didn't really have a steady stream of water other than liquor they could fetch from further away fountains like Chubby or from rain. You know, cisterns, you know, water catchers. Um, and so the restoration of that was problematic. Well, not problematic, it was, was programmatic. Because with the restoration of the fountain came the driving. The street that it's on the corner of is one of the streets that was the big focal point. It was actually the, the street laid out by uh, Pius V, the Via Pia, that led to the um, big Michelangelo gate there, you know, Porta Pia. And so that was kind of the beginning of the development of that area, the transformation of the of the, of the baths of Diocletian into a church and all of that. And so people were beginning to come around there. It was becoming a more active area. You had the Church of San Bernardo there. You had Santa Susanna, which goes up in that period, you know, around the time of the fountain or right after. But, you know, the Villa Montal, when you look at that image by Falda of the, um, the one that shows it in the piazza with people all walking around, the villa that's behind it is the villa that belongs to Sixtus V and his family. The big church that he's renovating there, which is right down the street, is Santa Maria Maggiore, which he's completely renovating the whole area around, putting his own tomb there. Okay? So this whole neighborhood is undergoing a huge renovation. Palaces are going up at Palazzo del Drago, those things. All these are going up along the roads where the water is coming in. And so the idea is to get pilgrims to these. And so draw, those are yeah. also part of drawing that into the ancient part of the city. Yeah, it's, it's basically taking the disabitated the, the uninhabited city and bringing it back to life yeah, yeah. and making That's Rome really a, big, a big capital city. Mm -hmm. And so it starts with, the, the big work starts with the 1575 Holy Year and then after that on the Gregory Thirteenth, and then Sixtus V continues it. And so, the, so that's when the Quattro Fontane is put in, which is, you know, the next Piazza Dano. Mm -hmm. It's the same aqueduct. And so all of these things are providing water, which means that neighborhoods can grow up, that palaces can go up, that, mm -hmm. that shops can Chinatown go up. Chinatown all over. Yeah. It's exactly, <laughs> the, it's exactly Chinatown. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. So you're right. In the urban fabric and in the, in the, in the version of this, which, which ends up being written, this is a huge part of that. Uh -huh. Because so we were talking plan, about city that. City planning this, gambit. 
Yeah, and I think taking something precious from the center of town and putting it out there and making it useful mm -hmm. is very Sixth to Fifth like because he treated tradition rather like something he could just play with. I mean, he's the guy who demolished ancient, famous ancient buildings to provide foundations for his for this. This fountain was built on a foundation that used to be the Septizodium. With that, it was a, one of those famous ancient monuments that was down by the Palatine Hill. It had a nice, local, nice supply of travertine and marble. Tear it down, make a base for my fountain. Right? I need lions. I, I, want, I want water spouts. What are the best ones? Well, there's those ones there. And so he just yanked things. And he was famous for, you know, famous for his movie. He's the guy who put all the obelisks up. So, you know, he's, a, he's going out digging stuff up and creating focal points. And the fountain hasn't been described as much as a focal point, although it has obelisks on top as the obelisks and columns and the other things he was doing. But I think it's part of the same movie. Yeah. Yeah, no question. So there's a social thing there that people go to see it. And I think that that's why in the 18th century they become a part of the of views of Rome in a way, because that Rome, which is now the Rome of the Grand Tour, there's something you go to see. Mm -hmm. Oh, those are the Felician line. You know, and maybe it takes time because maybe in the 17th century that development isn't hasn't quite did its. It may also be something you go to see in a different vein. Then you know, it's yeah. like, oh, let's check out what's going on. It's a part of town, you sort of. I mean, I've just come from Los Angeles, where the whole everything is about. Oh, downtown is. Yeah. It's new again. Everybody new. wants to go downtown exactly. to take a look at it's it new. and see what there was happening. So exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. in the 18th century, there was a huge development in that area with all the renovation of San Giovanni and you know, laying out all kinds of new urban places. It's it's a big boom area, a big boom area of the city during that period. And, but they also become a sort of, also I think the Egyptianness is sort of a to hot topic among antiquarians like, like Winkleman and Piranesi, and so it also becomes, well, we all like the lions. Like, like, nobody really dislikes, and I like that, is that, they, that they're, is that they're popular, is that they're not, that even these high-end people, which you don't think you really find talking about it, I mean, people like Champigny or Kirker, they're sort of weird antiquarians, they don't, they don't go into, you know, they don't they don't express themselves in the same kind of wholesome way that the 18th century people do. For some reason, it's all iconography, it's sort of dull. But it'll be great to find. I mean, another thing I have to look at, and I'm especially going to do it with guidebooks. It's like normally in the guidebooks they just say that they're there. Most of the guidebooks I've looked at after they go to the fountain, they're just there. But my guess is that the 19th century ones are, and the 18th, the 18th century ones, and maybe the early 19th century ones will be the ones that are good. But then once they're yanked out, they're copies. I'm not sure what to make of the copies yet. Other, there must be something. I have a question. Okay. I'm, I'm curious about the sort of the fastidious you know, transcriptions of the hieroglyphics yeah. and whether in that context there's any relationship drawn to to the lions themselves. I mean, since obviously they're making up whatever it is. What's must weird mean. about those things in the Ferrarini manuscripts, yeah. the 1480, 90 is that not only are, they, are there no drawings of the lions, there's no description of where they're from. So they're completely removed. Um, the, 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 in the first one, it's a book filled with crazy drawings. Really fanciful ones, reconstructions of it. It's really, in itself, a really wacky book. And when I say wacky, or it's like a scrapbook, because what he did, what Ferry did is he took a bunch of drawings and inscriptions that he had in something, maybe in folios, all scattered, and glued them into this little book. 
and they wrote a dedication which has room for a name on it on the front. So he was going to give it to somebody, but he never found a bot. Same with the other one, too. There's a big, long dedication with no name, which they would do. Now you see these things. And so he pasted them in. He cut them out in strips and pasted them onto the page. Right? So that's how they looked like that. But he did the strips very carefully, one, two, three, four. So they must have been marked on another sheet, which we don't know what it looked like. You also have descriptions of them being there by humanists, but also events very cryptic. Oh, other hieroglyphs you could see near the Pantheon. That rare, that obtuse. So he doesn't say where they are. They're in a section which deals with Rome. This is why I think people like 19th century and early 20th century scholars who couldn't read them had no idea where they were from. They just assumed they'd been copied in Egypt because they didn't go into the Vatican. Well, who's going to go into the Vatican to look at that ugly collection anyway and check, right? So, you know, they didn't check with an Egyptologist even to see, you know, what the what the cartouches said. It's funny. It's all uh, these experts in Greek and Latin didn't check, but they just wrote a little aside <coughs> saying, well, they're probably from there. You know, they didn't have time. So they're completely disassociated. Completely disassociated. So they only were identified as coming from the lines by Moi. First time, because <laughs> nobody ever cared to say where the source is. Now I don't know. I mean, it's almost Germanic to care, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the other question is, why were they copying them so closely? Yeah. Um, I think they thought they could decipher them. They had Horopolo's hieroglyphica. They had sources. And we know that in, in, the, in the book I've written, I, I recount a couple of documents where people are talking about how they circulated these drawings around. And one in particular, which was a, a nice pre-Ario Valeriano description of people in Venice complaining to his uncle, saying, well, we've got these wonderful drawings sent to us from Rome of the hieroglyphs on the obelisks and other monuments. This is around 1520. And we have your Horopolo that you just published, you know, your edition of this, giving all these meanings of hieroglyphs, this fifth century treatise. But when we look at these things, we can't figure out how those match up with these things. We're, we're baffled. Tell us what to do. And the guy, the uncle, who's like the leading expert, basically dodges the question and says, well, you know, there are so many, so many mysteries, it's so incomplete, there's so much we can't know, so much has been lost, right? So then he changes the subject. <laughs> so they would talk about how hieroglyphs mean all these mystical things, and how they could communicate universally, mm -hmm. how it's a non-alphabetic, uh, non-language, non-speech-related script that functions symbolically, so it's thus theoretically available to all people, and that only learned people could understand them, right? But then they would divert instantly to the invention of new ones, rather than really try their luck. You can imagine they probably tried their luck, like that probably means this and this and this. But they no, no one ever published a, 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 a sign for sign translation until Kirchner. And his are insane, but I should mention that they're not unlearned. They're incredibly learned, and he knew a lot of stuff about ancient Egyptian that was true, like he, he published the first modern grammar of Coptic from Arabic grammars that were collected by people who went to Egypt. He knew that Coptic was the ancient Egyptian language. He believed that the hieroglyphs functioned as a phonetic system um, for that they could be read mundanely to give information, but that wasn't the part he was interested in. He thought there were three levels, like things are supposed to have three levels. One was this mundane level, one was a sort of a more mysterious level, and then one was a deep theological level. And he was interested in the deep theological meaning, unearthing the secret mysteries. And so he didn't bother, even though he kind of knew that they were normal alphabetic script too, he never really 
explored that. He actually could have theoretically done it. He knew that he had the information. It, it was his books, partly, that made Champollion possible. But I think they were hoping they could translate them. In any case, they're copying them as inscriptions. And you get these 16th century, these whole albums of these things. So clearly, they want to get them and get them accurate, which is kind of cool. They're also removing them from other contexts, too, so they're, they're yeah, not associated with the directing of the obelisk. Well, yeah, there's drawings of the obelisk with perfectly yeah. rendered, and then drawings of other things, mummy cases, with perfectly rendered hieroglyphic inscriptions off from 16th, 17th century. Kirkard has hundreds of them. He deciphers every single one. We are right. out of time, out of time. but I want to thank yeah. everyone for coming and thank you especially thank to you. Brian for a very good